evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. The Supreme Court recently heard oral arguments in Comcast v. National Association of African-American-Owned Media. This is a discrimination suit brought by African-American actor and comedian Byron Allen against Comcast for failure to carry his network. Allen alleged that the reason Comcast decided not to carry his network was because of race, and he sued under the Civil Rights Act of 1866. On this evening's show, we're going to talk about this case and also talk about the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and how the Supreme Court decision may affect the future of our oldest civil rights statute. Joining us for this discussion is Don Corbett, professor of law at North Carolina Central University School of Law and a frequent guest on our show. We're happy, as always, to have you here. And Professor Corbett teaches, among other courses, constitutional law and critical race theory. Thank you so much, Professor Corbett, for being with us again. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. <laughs> I mean, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> so why don't we first start with the Civil Rights Act of 1866? And so that was, you know, we're all familiar with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but many folks aren't aware that there were other civil rights statutes that were enacted prior to that. Can, can you talk a little bit about the Civil Rights Act of 1866? Sure. Now, how nerdy do you want me to get in talking about this? I don't want to go and lose everybody in the history of all of it. Well, go, go as nerdy as, as you want to. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll we bring you back in. Yeah, we'll okay. bring you back in if we need to. So all of this has its uh, underpinnings in the Civil War. So the Civil War is fought between the North and the South, 1861 to 1865. Uh, General Lee surrenders at Appomattox. And then the question becomes, how do we bring the country back together? And more importantly, for the purposes of the discussion, how do we uh, honor and enforce the rights and privileges that have now been earned by the abolition of slavery? So now we have uh, the 13th Amendment, which is abolishing slavery for good. Some people think it was the Emancipation Proclamation. It was not. It was actually... 13th Amendment. And the question is, how do we give people the opportunity to become a more substantive part of this society and do so in a way that that makes sure the states don't undercut the federal government in our attempts to do so? So the oldest, I think it's the oldest federal Mm -hmm. civil rights statute is the Civil Rights, the um, 1866 Act. And one of the things that the act does is it says that that you cannot discriminate on the basis of race in the making and enforcements of contracts. And that is where, again, you know, the, the premise of it is that we just want to give people the opportunity, an equal opportunity, to enter into these agreements without regard to their racial background. So the premise of that particular provision is also the heartbeat of this lawsuit that was filed by Byron Allen. So do you want me to keep talking about the lawsuit, or is just, we're just talking about 1866 and that act? No, I think that's a great segue into into the lawsuit. Yeah, so so tell us a little bit more sure, about this sure. lawsuit. Sure, sure. So I'm not as, as fluent with the facts as I once was. I'm going to give it a shot, and I'll let you fill in the blanks if I mess something up. But 
essentially Byron Allen, for those of us who are under 50, <laughs> and I don't know what, how much Party Blues in the audience is, but he started his career in Hollywood as a comedian. He was actually, I believe, discovered by Jimmy Walker, if you remember J.J. from Good Times. He was only like 14 or 15. So his entry into Hollywood is through the comedic uh, uh, door. And he didn't, I think he was really, I'm trying to think of what he wasn't, and I'll say he wasn't Richard Pryor, and he wasn't Eddie Murphy, and he wasn't Red Fox. He was much more akin to like a Wayne Brady, mm-hmm. which is not to denigrate him anyway. I'm just saying that was his style of comedy. So he transitioned from that into being a television host for a couple of years and for a couple of very successful shows for a longer period of time. And then he decided that there was more money on the other side of the fence. And he was right about that. Mm-hmm. So he formed his own entertainment uh, company, which is called Entertainment Studios Now, I believe. And uh, he basically, in, I want to say in 2008 or 2009, created eight 24-hour networks. And each of these networks uh, formulated the basis of his organization. And somewhere along the way, he bought the television assets to the Weather Channel for somewhere between 200 and $300 million. So he is doing it and and doing it really well. So he eventually goes to the Comcast folks. Comcast, I think, for people who don't know, is kind of like a cable provider in the same way that Spectrum is locally, I think. And he asks for permission to put seven of these network shows onto the Comcast uh, uh, network of stations. And he's denied. The answer coming back from them is no. And at some point, I'm not sure when this happened, but at some point, information got back to him that they were basically clowning him during the process like they denigrated him for even making the attempt and some of those some of that denigration was based on the fact that it was a black owned company and as we said now this is a guy with assets so he decided he wasn't going to stand for that and he sued the company for i want to say 20 billion dollars and the the genesis of the lawsuit or the legal theory of the lawsuit is that you are violating the uh, provision of the 1866 Act that we referenced that allows me to be able to contract freely regardless of race. So you're discriminating against me, and your decision was based in racial discrimination, which is precluded by the 1866 Act. Was it 1942 uh, U.S.C. 1981, I think, is the... Uh, yeah, that's the provision uh, within the law. Yeah, mm-hmm. the uh, 1866 uh, statute, mm-hmm. uh, and which wasn't widely, has not been widely used uh, in litigation prior to uh, really 1965 or so. So even though it was on the books, uh, it was not then uh, widely uh, used, nor has it been widely used uh, since that time and probably more in uh, the housing and, 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 and employment context uh, than straight contractual uh, situations like we have here with uh, Byron uh, Allen. But isn't it pretty much understood that in order to prevail under uh, a 1981 uh, scheme, uh, that there has to be proof of intentional uh, racial discrimination? Yes, I think that's part of what the argument was at the Supreme Court level. So basically, the the contention from the organization is that it, I think it aligns with what you just said, which is that you have to show that basically what's called but for but for the issue of racial discrimination, he would have been able to receive 
a more positive outcome from him. So basically, if he had been white and put forth the same case toward Comcast, then he would have been able to be successful in getting them to launch his networks on, this, on, the, uh, on the provider. So that's what his, or that's what uh, Comcast's contention is. And the lower courts, the first two or three judges, I think, that got a hold to it actually agreed with that premise. So that meant that when Allen filed his complaint under this legal theory, the court said, well, we don't see anything in here that shows that this decision, this decision was solely based on race. So they dismissed his complaint. So for people who aren't familiar with that kind of parlance, basically it just means that you don't even get to the jury. You don't get to have the, the judge hear your case. It's dismissed at the earliest of stages. So he appealed that case and appealed it to the Ninth Circuit, which is that's the area that covers California and a few other states out west. And the premise of the appeal is that that particular standard that, that Professor Joyner referenced, this intentional act, is really not the proper standard to evaluate his claim at this particular stage. And there is some support for the argument that instead of it being the sole reason for the, um, for the decision, that it merely has to be a motivating factor for the decision. And as long as the plaintiff can allege that, that race was a motivating factor behind the decision, then he gets to at least stay in court, and then he can you know, prove his case or not prove his case based on the merits of it. So what the court had to determine was which of these standards, or what the court will have to determine is which of these standards applies. So the lower courts all said that it's the initial intentional discrimination, i.e. the but-for test that you referenced, that applied, and therefore he couldn't stay in court. The Ninth Circuit said, no, that's not quite right. We think it's actually the motivating factor standard that is the one that should carry the day. And they allowed him to go back to court, but of course now Comcast has appealed, and it got up to the Supreme Court, and they argued it a couple weeks ago. And, you know, when we think about, you know, the dismissal <clears throat> of, a, of a case, and particularly when we're thinking about race discrimination, you know, how does one go about proving that? How does one go about bringing forth the evidence that will ultimately support the claim? And can you talk about the danger of, of dismissing a discrimination claim prior to allowing the plaintiff to be able to engage in discovery, which allows them to get documents and to do depositions and interrogatories, and why that's so problematic for a plaintiff if they don't have an opportunity to explore their, their claim? Yeah, there, there are layers to that, as you know. There are, you know it's, it's to make it easy for people to understand what a lot of race-based claims require when you're trying to prove discrimination is what Professor Joyner mentioned earlier, which is intentional discrimination. And in this day and time, that's basically the equivalent of the defendant firing a silver bullet from a smoking gun, and there's got to be video of him firing the gun. That's about how much, you know, how much things have to be aligned in order to prove that in this day and time. And that's not just with this type of cases, with other kinds of cases as well. Intentional discrimination, very, very thorny to be able to, to prove. Uh, so the problem, as, as you mentioned, is since it's not going to be that kind of evidence that's presented at the time you file your complaint, then you have to be able to investigate yourself during the course of litigation the documents that you'd be able to receive uh, you'd be able to take some of what's called depositions, meaning you'd have you get to give engage in a question and answer service with people that worked with uh, the defendant, and you have to use that information in order to help prove your case. 
So if your complaint is dismissed before you even get the opportunity to do that, then it means that that the barrier of, of proving racial discrimination, which is difficult in any circumstance, now becomes virtually impossible in the sense that you have the right to do it, but you don't have the tools to go forward so you can do it. So while the the court focused its argument on really this narrow kind of legal question of which test should apply, the implications for their decision is, is really massive when it comes to, because what we're really talking about here is access to business and opportunity to business. And if that's precluded on the basis of race and you're basically required to show at the very beginning of the stages of, the, you know, that, that there's this intentional discrimination that existed without an opportunity to do discovery and to build your case as you go forward, then it basically is going to negate and prevent people of color from being able to file these kind of lawsuits in the future. And it opens the door for nefarious actors to do that without regard to being uh, called to carpet on it for the court system. Well, it seems, it seems to me that, that, that a part of the problem uh, in this, I guess, high-scale industry, that there is only one, or that there was only one African-American company uh, seeking to do business with Comcast. And uh, that merely because Allen was denied that opportunity, that denial of an African-American company would not carry with it uh, imperture of racial discrimination just because it was a 100% African-American company, which seems to me to be a part of the evidentiary problem that uh, that uh, Allen's company uh, is uh, confronting here. I, I, I guess, you know, in terms of just kind of looking at the, uh, at the at the evidence, Allen was saying that because he was an African-American company and that the people at Comcast had a derogatory view of him and did not contract with him, that that was tantamount to establishing racial discrimination. Yeah, I th- I think he had some some documents that that suggested there w- there was some evidence to certainly suggest that that race was um, considered or that there were some derogatory um, views, potential animus, and and I think at the pleading stage the question was and and he's actually had a couple of complaints. I think he's on like maybe his the third amended complaint because I think in terms of trying to figure out the best way to to bring this claim in terms of the allegations has evolved for the reason that you mentioned before, Irv, which is 1981 has been used a lot in employment, a lot with housing, but not really in this context. And so I think the attorneys have, have been trying to figure out the best way to approach this. So I think there, there was certainly evidence, and the, I think the question is, does the complaint put forth enough allegations that are supported at this point that would allow them to continue on and to engage in discovery and then be able to flesh out even more evidence? But, but I do think it's more than just we made the request. We're a 100 percent African-American owned 
company network and and we were denied and that that in and of itself was enough to give rise to a, a 1981 claim and while there wasn't i don't know if this made i doubt it actually made any of his official pleadings but i i remember reading about a former executive at the company who basically said that they would bring in uh black companies for shows that that had themes that would appeal to to our folk and then leave them to basically fail so they wouldn't give them the same support system. So it's one, in one breath, they're touting their diversity and they're touting, oh, look how open we are for these. But then you leave them on the vine to fail and you don't give them the same support system that you gave some or that you've given some of the other shows that are in place. So I think the combination of what you referenced, plus, you know, anecdotal stuff like that would suggest that that Alan's not crazy and feeling this may have been a piece of it. And, and the problem for him in part is what Professor Joyner spoke to, which is there's just not a lot out there and not a lot of these kinds of cases out there that, that, that he can kind of hang his hat on. And that's why they're going back and forth with regard to what the legal standard ought to be for him to be able to go forward. What then is the danger from a Supreme Court decision with respect to the test that is to be used and how that might impact other litigation which seeks to uh, 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 follow the uh, uh, prohibitions of 1981. And that's a great question which we will get an answer to when we come back, but we're going to have to take a quick break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM, and we've been talking with Professor Don Corbett, who is a constitutional law professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we've been talking about this recent decision, Comcast v. National Association of African American Owned Media. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. I'm Nastasia Harris, a second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. The holidays tend to ignite the spirit of giving in all of us. In 2018 alone, Americans gave approximately $471 billion in charitable donations. You may also be qualified to claim a deduction on your federal taxes for charitable gifts of money or property made to any qualified organization. Making a donation to a charity or nonprofit can be a great way to give back to your community. However, donors should be aware that some of the people who claim to raise money for charities may try to take advantage of your generosity. Before you decide to give to any charity, take the time to learn where your money will go and how it will help. Here are several tips to consider when donating to a charity. Instead of responding to solicitations to make a donation, do your research and decide which charities you want to support and contact them directly. Do your research. Visit websites such as give.org and charitywatch.org to find more information on charities and for ratings. Find out whether charities are licensed to solicit donations in North Carolina. Many charities that solicit in our state are required by law to register with the NC Secretary of State. Finally, don't give cash. Cash gifts can be lost or stolen. For security and tax record purposes, it's best to pay by credit card. If you pay by check, make it out to the charity itself and not the fundraiser. Virtual Justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening and happy holidays from your Legal Eagle community.
And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Professor Don Corbett, who teaches at NCCU School of Law. And we've been talking about the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which is implicated in a recent Supreme Court case, Comcast v. National Association of African American Owned Media, which is a company and a lawsuit which is being brought by Byron Allen. Um, or right before the break, you were talking about the potential harm that might exist if the Supreme Court were to rule in such a way that it would make it difficult to bring 1981 claims, which is the, the federal statute that allows for lawsuits under the Civil Rights Act of, of 1866. Don, can you talk about what would happen if the court ultimately does reach a conclusion that in order to even bring a claim to, to be able to get to the discovery stage of a lawsuit, a litigant would have to be able to demonstrate that but for cause, but for the race discrimination and the impact that would have on 1981 claims? I think the nuclear scenario is this, where if every plaintiff or petitioner is now going to have to show that but for this discrimination on the basis of race by this party, we would have gotten whatever the desired result was. If that's necessary at the pleading stage, if it's necessary at the complaint stage, then it's going to have probably the de facto effect of just closing the door on people right from the beginning, such that they never even get an opportunity to prove their case in court. And that can lead to the frustration of where, 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 you, where you can't even find attorneys to represent you to do it. And that's really the other hurdle here is not just that you won't be able to, to, to vindicate your claims in court. You may not even be able to find an attorney who will take the case. These are not going to be typically lucrative cases to take if you're a practicing attorney. So if attorney knows right off the top that if you don't have that smoking gun email or that taped phone conversation, if you don't have anything up front that shows me that there's been intentional discrimination here, then I don't, I can't take the case because it's not, it's just not worth their time and energy and the money they have to off, uh, to spend in order to litigate the case. So I think it could potentially have the effect of just closing the door on all black people, Latino people, et cetera, anybody who runs into a similar situation. Now, not everybody's going to have the assets of, of Byron Allen, but you, you really won't even get to first base. And I think that's where the harm is. So, so, on its face, it looks like kind of an academic question in terms of what the legal standard ought to be. But depending on what the court accepts, if they buy Comcast's way of thinking, then I think it could potentially have that kind of a widespread effect, uh, at least using this particular provision as a, as a means of remedy for, for, for petitioners in the future. And, you know, that raises another issue, which is the effect that it will have on those that are in power, in those positions. So if, if Comcast is successful in this suit that's currently pending before the Supreme Court, you, you can imagine how Comcast and other companies like that will continue doing business going forward because they know that it's going to be incredibly difficult for anyone to be successful in bringing these actions. And so knowing that there's a statute that might limit your ability to discriminate on the basis of race, 
acts as some sort of control, but if you realize that that statute doesn't have any teeth at all, then it just allows those that want to use race as a, as a means by which to discriminate the ability to do so without ever having to pay any sort of consequences no, for it. No recourse for it at all. And, and to go one step further, you know, one of the things that, that President Trump has been immensely successful at is, is placing voices on the Supreme Court that are consistent with, with what I would say the quote-unquote conservative way of approaching issues like this is which means that they're going to have very discerning eyes about these kinds of cases from the very beginning. So with this kind of standard coming before a lot of these new judges that are now going to be appointed and maybe on the bench for as much as 30 or 40 years, it just complicates the matter even more in terms of trying to find a way to, to, to seek a remedy when you've been victimized like this. I mean, in some ways, Byron Allen is very, very fortunate because he has the resources to take this all the way to the Supreme Court. But most folk are not similarly situated. And you're right. I think the temptation is going to be that if I don't have to worry about this law, then why should I? And we'll just operate more in the open, so to speak, as opposed to kind of keep it behind closed doors. I, I think also that you know, people in our audience need to understand that when you file a lawsuit, it does not mean that you have all of the evidence that is necessary for you to succeed in the case and that typically there is a period called discovery uh, where you have the opportunity to go back and flesh out documents uh, and other evidence which might exist in the possession of the uh, defendants in the case that they have to turn over to you regarding the claim uh, that you've made and oftentimes it is in that information that you find the smoking gun or the civil bullet, as, uh, as, as, as Don uh, mentioned uh, earlier. And in this case, uh, this motion to dismiss was filed at the pleading stage long before they got into any discovery such that uh, Allen has been precluded from uh, being able to get additional information to support uh, the claim. And then if, it's, if this whole litigation is cut off at this point, it also says something about the ability of plaintiffs to uh, delve into uh, company records, to interview uh, witnesses down the line uh, that can go forward to help uh, support the uh, claim that they made in their, uh, their initial complaint. Yeah, and you know, Irv, in hearing you, with what you just said, it made me think about just the, I, I will say, one benefit of this lawsuit is the press that it's gotten, which is one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about it, because it does bring into folks' um, Their focus? Yes. <laughs> it does bring into folks' focus. One, this Civil Rights Act of 1866, also in terms of the types of claims that can be brought with respect to discrimination, and also what the t when we're thinking about economic power and who has it and who doesn't, I mean, I think it's always good that, that we think about that. And so, Don, can you talk about the press and how this case has kind of opened the eyes, I think, for many people in terms of these issues and, and how it affects not just the millionaires, because Byron Allen, as you noted, has the resources. He is a millionaire. But how these issues can affect even everyday folks couple things come to mind right away. First, you know, this is really, at least for me, a new take on a very old problem. 
the old problem being access to opportunity and whether when you get that access there it truly is merit-based or whether something more sinister is in play. So this is a different context for it. Like Professor Joyner said, you know, we don't see this in a contractual setting very much or with contract being the underpinning um, a basis of it. But this is one of the things that makes it unique. But again, as we've seen this in a bunch of different contexts over history for a long time. But the thing about the press thing that's, you know, I hate to call it cool, but it's helpful, is that some people may not even know that this is an avenue that they can take if they feel like they've been wronged. And it could be that in the next case involving maybe even a slightly, you know, obviously would be usually a smaller uh, minority-owned company, some of these facts may look familiar to them just in a different context, whether it's a radio context or television or Internet or whatnot. And, and they may not have even known that this particular remedy is out there for them. And in some of those instances, there may be a smoking gun that allows people to pursue this particular claim, which, which kind of allows us to circle back to the point that we made earlier, which is if the complaint requires proof of intentional discrimination on the front end that you may not have and may be able to discover at a later basis or on a, on a, at a later time, like Professor Joyner suggested, then you're at least in the game and you're at least in the ball game. But I think what's good about the press coverage here is that some people may not have even known that this game is available to play. And it could be that even where Allen may not be successful with his own lawsuit, that the knowledge base that has created because of the press coverage allows the next party to maybe have a little bit more success. Again, with hopefully a, a friendlier legal standard than Comcast wants to see instituted here. You know, the, the irony uh, of this case is that it was found several years ago and did not uh, gain the attention of the civil rights community until it landed on the desk of the Supreme Court. And one of the reasons that it landed on, or it caused this uproar within uh, the civil rights uh, community was because uh, the Donald Trump administration joined in this case on behalf of Comcast uh, to uh, basically uh, to push for a stricter ruling on the legal uh, principles uh, that had to be satisfied in order to establish a 1981 uh, violation. And, uh, but for a long period of time, uh, this kind of slid under the radar uh, because the Trump administration did not see this as a vehicle now to uh, enhance typically corporate power at the expense of some racial minority or some minority on uh, uh, concern. And I want to say, Irv, that the Chamber of Commerce also filed what's called a friend of the court brief, mm-hmm. uh, which basically means we're advocating for a certain position, even though we're not a litigant, we're not a litigant to this particular complaint, uh, and, and fell on the side of Comcast. And, and their fear, or at least their stated fear, was that you're now going to have allegations of discrimination that you have to fight that may not be factual if you don't require a higher burden at the very front end of this. So, so I think you're right. I think that these things have kind of coalesced in a unique way. But I do think that it was the Trump administration signing on uh, on the side of Comcast, which really probably shouldn't surprise anybody. But, but at least in doing so, you get more attention to anything that they do. And in some cases, again, shining the light on these things is helpful for people, even if, even if you know, Mr. Allen doesn't succeed. 
you may have other companies out there that might be successful. And, you know, we talk a lot about discrimination and, you know, these issues of is it but for discrimination or is it uh, a motivating factor? And the issue that we have here with respect to Comcast and um, a 100 percent black owned network, we this is not a, a new scenario. So, Irv, you noted that uh, when we're thinking about voting and when individuals have been able to prove that obstacles that have been placed in the way have been designed to try and disenfranchise the African-American vote and, and the different standards there. Can you talk a little bit about, um, because you teach race and the law, you teach civil rights, can you talk a little bit about, I'm putting you in the role of, of the guest here, um, about other situations that involve intentional discrimination that are similar to kind of the issue here, which is what do you need to establish in order to prove that, in fact, these actions were done because of race? Yeah, in, in the uh, context of the uh, 1965 Voting Rights Act, uh, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, decided a case uh, in the 1970s, uh, Washington versus Davis, uh, which dealt with uh, uh, discrimination in the uh, redistricting process. And uh, in that uh, case, the question was whether the uh, plaintiff or the African-American litigants in that case had to establish uh, an intent uh, to uh, discriminate in order to uh, make out a violation of the uh, Voting Rights Act. And the court decided in that case that uh, that they did, uh, because this was a, uh, uh, a a statute that was premised and supported on the uh, 15th Amendment uh, and the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, uh, that it carried with it the same uh, legal requirement that you have to prove intentional discrimination uh, to uh, create a constitutional uh, violation, and since uh, the Voting Rights Act was in furtherance of this constitutional uh, standard, then the intent uh, had to be established. Uh, subsequent to that, uh, Congress uh, met and uh, disagreed with the Supreme Court, but then re uh, amended the voting rights uh, statute to add the effects test. So in uh, uh, Section 2 of the uh, Voting Rights Act, you have uh, both the opportunity to establish intentional racial discrimination, which is an onerous burden, and also the effects, which is a much lighter uh, burden. But that is available because Congress went back and specifically amended the voting rights statute to include the effects test. And that is something that is, has not occurred with respect to uh, 1981 uh, at this point. And I don't know what the thinking of the court is going to be, except that during the uh, arguments, uh, the conservative justices were pretty hostile uh, to uh, this notion of uh, uh, formulating an effects test uh, for uh, 1981 litigation. And, you know, Irv, that raises a, a good point, which is, 
you know, this claim here is a statutory claim. It's not a constitutional claim. Don, can you talk about, we're talking about race discrimination, and oftentimes when we're thinking about race discrimination, kind of the, the public at large, we think, obviously, of the Constitution. We think of the Equal Protection Clause. But that's not the basis for the lawsuit. And just to share with our listeners um, real quick, the reason why, if you're talking about what a private company is doing, how you know, that might be discrimination, but it's not unconstitutional, and therefore there's a need for a statute. Sure. The Constitution itself is written in such a way as to where it provides individual remedies for uh, folk for who have been aggrieved by the government. So what's needed in constitutional claims is what's called state action. So that means that there, the government has to have been actively involved in depriving you of rights that are guaranteed by the Constitution. So as an example, the University of North Carolina system is a byproduct of the government of, the, of North Carolina. So if the University of North Carolina, we'll say at Asheville, decided that they weren't going to admit any more black male students for the next two years, and I apply to UNC Asheville and I'm rejected on the basis of my race, then I can sue on the grounds of uh, what's called equal protection. So the Constitution and the 14th Amendment guarantees me as a citizen equal protection of the laws. So if the state or the government, the state government, or in some cases the federal government through a different, uh, a different amendment, if it actively denies you these rights, then that creates a constitutional claim. However, these constitutional guarantees don't apply against private entities. So in order to accomplish some of these goals of, of trying to create more racial harmony and more racial equity, Congress has to pass laws that will entitle people to seek remedies under those laws. So the one that's probably the easiest for folks to remember is Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which made it illegal to discriminate in private space in a way that the Constitution couldn't really address. So that's why these cases are statutory in nature. That means that, that, that means the person who is suing is suing under a statute instead of the Constitution. Now, the end goal is the same. We're trying to eliminate discrimination. It's just the ticket in the vehicle by which we try to deliver that particular claim. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with Professor Don Corbett, who is a professor of law at North Carolina Central University School of Law, where he teaches, among other courses, constitutional law and critical race theory. And we've been talking about Comcast v. National Association of African-American-Owned Media. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Professor Don Corbett. And Don, right before the break, you were talking about, you were explaining to our listeners why when it comes to discrimination that's being committed by a private entity, the Constitution doesn't apply, but Congress is able to enact statutes that will get at that private behavior. And so that's what we have here with the Civil Rights Act of 1866. 
Um, so, you know, when we think about what it's required, what a plaintiff is required to establish, so if the Supreme Court were to rule in such a way that would make it difficult for plaintiffs to bring complaints, because it's a statute, actually, that does open the door for Congress to be able to modify the statute, amend the statute, and to um, change it such that a plaintiff is able to bring a claim and succeed on a claim if they're able to show motivating factor as opposed to but-for factor when it comes to race discrimination. Can you talk a little bit about Congress being so inclined to do something like that and, and what we would have to do if the Supreme Court were to rule in a narrow way here? In theory, that's 100% right. You know, Congress can, can look at this verdict, decide this is not the way that we intended the or the goals of this law will be accomplished by requiring this kind of pleading standard at the front end as opposed to letting plaintiffs pursue their case wherever it takes them. And they absolutely have the right to amend that particular language and create a different legal standard. It could do that. But this is where the problem of the Trump administration being involved becomes problematic because one of the things that we have seen over time, we're seeing it in the way they react to his various machinations in office. We've seen it with regard to these impeachment proceedings. And we would see it if Congress came down on the opposite side of this particular dispute. Because now the Trump administration is on the record and saying, we believe that Comcast is right. And we believe that we have to be careful about uh, fake discrimination claims. And we don't want people to unnecessarily have to expend resources to fight claims that may not be meritorious down the line. That's why we should have a higher standard from the beginning. So if the, if the Trump Justice Department has already made that statement, then the question is, how willing is Congress going to be to buck that particular angle? And I think we've seen, at least to this stage, they just have not had the will to do that unless something was you know, just blatantly obvious, such as the... As, as the situation involving the Turks and the Syrians. You know, but other than that, that's, that's an anomaly. That's not something that happens regularly. So I think, yes, the answer is yes, in theory. On, on, a, on an exam, you would, students would say to you, absolutely, yes, they can do that. They can write the law in such a way to, to bolster the aims of the law. But in practice, I think there would be very little chance of that happening. And, and it's also interesting that uh, this, uh, uh, the, the favorable ruling uh, for uh, for Allen came from the Ninth Circuit, uh, which has been maligned as the most liberal and radical uh, federal district uh, or uh, appellate or court of appeals in the uh, country, and they have had more uh, reversals uh, on uh, many of their rulings from the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, than any other uh, uh, circuit district uh, in the uh, in the country, and uh, so I don't know if this is going to fall in line with some of those other outliers that have uh, come in from the uh, Ninth Circuit. This kind of circles back to Don's point about how Trump has is changing the landscape of the federal judiciary. And if you have judges that are appointed that view claims of discrimination 
skeptically who are less inclined to provide protections against discrimination, then you're, you know, we still, you know, have the, the Ninth Circuit, but we see a number of circuits kind of flipping in terms of the number of conservatives versus the liberals. And so it's a good point that you raise, Irv, about this comes out of the Ninth Circuit, which is a very liberal circuit. It's one of the few kind of remaining liberal circuits, but it's going to a Supreme Court that is 5-4 more conservative, which raises the question then, Don, do you have any predictions about how the court might rule in this case? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. Because from listening, and and sadly, I have to admit, I was listening to the argument. I fell asleep because I'm (laughs) old and that's what I do now. I just post 9 o'clock. There's no guarantees. And I was listening to the argument. And and I think that the reason that I'm uncertain in terms of which way it may go, I think that you're going to have some conservative justices who are going to lean toward the idea of this heightened standard. Right. And I think the, the the interesting thing will be, will all of the justices be uncomfortable with kind of a dual standard? Because what it seemed like to me, what what the lawyers for for Allen were arguing is that ultimately we know that we've got to show that racial discrimination was the heart of this decision. But they don't want to have to do it right now. And they just want to say that at this stage, all we should have to show is a motivating factor. So basically what that creates is duality in your legal standard, right? Because you have to show on the front end the motivating factor or motivating cause of this particular problem. But then on the back end, you have to still show that but for this racial discrimination, we would have had a different result. So there may be discomfort on the court with regard to splitting those standards, right? So if they can find five votes, which unfortunately I don't think would be difficult to find for just that one standard, I think it would be more likely to be the intentional discrimination standard for the reasons that that Professor Joyner mentioned, because I think in some of their minds, they would see that as more parallel to to, uh, some of their other holdings. Now, where I think the pushback is, is ultimately, if you're the plaintiffs, I think you want to get to more of a burden shifting analysis. We haven't talked about that, but that's kind of what happens with Title VII claims where the plaintiff basically has the initial burden of showing proof of racial discrimination. And then the burden switches over to the defendant to show that there was a legitimate non-discriminatory reason for the decision. But then the plaintiff kind of has the last word to show that, yeah, but that's only a pretext for race. So you still made this a race-based decision. And I think in the best of all possible worlds, uh, the lawyers for for, for um Mr. Allen would like to see that particular framework instituted. But the question is, can you get there from the legal question that they, they have in front of them? And I just don't know that you can. So I'm cynical, and I would say probably they roll with Comcast just because of the reasons that we mentioned about the conservative nature of the court, the pro-business nature of the court, and the higher pleading standard when it comes to race discrimination cases generally. I think those factors would tend to weigh toward or against Allen instead of in favor of Allen. Yeah. I hope I'm wrong, though. Yeah, I, I think the only thing that, that gives me hope, uh, and it was a this was a very confusing, I think, for all parties, oral arguments, uh, not just the, I think, the justices in terms of the, the arguments that were being presented by, by both sides. And this is a, an incredibly complex area. The, the thing that does give me some hope, though, is that this is a dismissal at the pleading stage. And so I think I, from the questions from the justices, 
they seem to recognize that it's virtually impossible, particularly if you're talking about race discrimination claims, for a plaintiff to be able to have enough information to plead definitively that race was a but-for cause of the discrimination and that there's got to be some level of discovery because all of the, the documents and all the information is actually in the hands of the of the alleged party that's discriminating. So there did seem to me to be some discomfort with allowing a case to be dismissed at this stage. So the part I was awake about. I, right. <laughs> right. I sense that, yeah. So, but that, you know, even getting over this hurdle doesn't address the question of at the end of the day if, if Alan is going to be successful. So he might win this particular battle, but it doesn't mean that he's going to win the, the war. Irv, do you have some prediction on on how you think, uh, at, at least you, maybe even at this stage, how the case might resolve? Yeah, well, I, I'm kind of in line with uh, Professor Corbett uh, on his uh, thinking uh, through. Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that uh, the kind of burden-shifting uh, arrangement uh, might be something that they uh, will uh, consider, but I, I, my recollection is that that is not even before the court uh, at uh, at this point. That hasn't been raised by any of the litigants, uh, as as far as I know. Uh, and uh, you know, the justices might uh, see that as a way out. But I think that uh, you know, in terms of the practicality of it, that if you uh, foreclose uh, a claim at this stage. Uh, without ever getting into uh, discovery or allowing people to uh, complete uh, the discovery uh, process, then you've done a real harm uh, to the ability to uh, bring uh, successful civil rights uh, uh, claims against uh, in, in racial discrimination or gender discrimination or racial discrimination uh, matters. Yeah, I think that, and, and to echo the, the hope, They've, they've done this kind of thing before where they've kind of fashioned their own remedy based on the legal question that was that was placing them. And I do sense that, that there was discomfort with the idea of kicking people out this early. So, you know, and, and for Alan, I think if he can stay in court, then he can eventually settle the case in a way that's favorable for him. He doesn't have to necessarily get all the way to the end of the line and get to the jury trial in order to win. If he can force a settlement, which in which maybe results in some of his shows being on uh, uh, being on this particular cable provider then then in many ways he's he's won so but he can't win from the sideline and if they boot him at the very beginning then he's going to be on the sideline as will the rest of us <laughs> again <laughs> <laughs> So this case is going to be, well, I, I was about to say this case is going to be going on for a long time. It, it will certainly be going on for another couple of months while we await the court's decision. But even if the court were to allow the case to proceed, then you've got, of course, the discovery phase, and then there will be the summary judgment phase. Don, can you talk about what happens during the summary judgment? So if the court does allow this case to go forward, what, what happens next? And, and when might we see the court having to make another decision about, you know, the case? Yeah, so so, so let's, let's assume that we get a favorable outcome, and we don't know what that looks like, but let's assume that it's favorable for Mr. Allen, and he basically is required to only plead that race may have been a motivating factor. At that point, 
uh, you get where Professor Joyner was talking about in terms of what's called discovery. So that's basically an exchange of information between the parties. Parties will request documents. Parties will interview each other's, you know, main uh, main folk who were who were at the table or behind the table doing whatever you know was germane to this particular decision to deny him access to these uh, to this particular network provider. So once that happens, and this could go on for what six, Years. twelve months, eighteen months, mm-hmm. even longer, depending on the complexity of the case. But at some point, what will probably happen? is Comcast will move for what's called summary judgment, which basically means that there really is no dispute about the material facts that are going on within the case. And that because of the legal standard that's in play, we win as a matter of law. So that is a situation and a technique where the jury never gets to hear the case. Or if you have what's called a bench trial, the judge never gets to hear the case. Instead, the judge will look at the merits of the summary judgment motion and either grant the motion, which means the case would be dismissed and be over, or deny the, or, or, um, uh, deny the motion, which means uh, Mr. Allen and his lawyers can keep going forward, presumably to a potential trial or a settlement. So if the summary judgment motion is granted and the case is dismissed, then my guess is Allen will appeal again. And then it would go before the Ninth Circuit again, and then it would go potentially to the Supreme Court again. But as Irv said, I think this case was filed in like 2015 or 16, and we're already going on four years, and we have not even gotten to first base. So it could, at least potentially, if uh, the court uh, uh, sides with Mr. Allen at this stage, it could go on for another three to five years. And then at that point, what happens is I think business starts to get in the way and people start thinking about the amount of money that they're expending because litigation for for people who've never been involved is extremely expensive especially at this level with so much at stake these people are hiring very very expensive lawyers and while they have resources you don't want to just just you know have a bottomless pit with regard to these resources so it could be that an additional 2 to 4 or 3 to 5 years of litigation uh, hurts enough financially where all the parties come to the table and say, hey, man, let's, let's, let's work this out and see if we can come to some agreement about what should go on from here. So we'll see. We'll see. But all that starts with with the court's ruling and what do you think it'll be? Maybe late spring, summer, mm-hmm. somewhere in there before we hear? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. It, I mean, this isn't one of those uh, as far as the Supreme Court, you know, June is is the time where Supreme Court nerds, right. you know, are really excited because those are the most difficult decisions for the court. I think either way it goes, I don't know if this is going to be a particularly contentious decision. It's mm-hmm. a pretty narrow issue. So, yeah, I would think, you know, probably mid to, to late spring. I don't think we're going to go into the summer with this one. Okay. So, Herb, I did have a question for you. If it does get to discovery, and we just have a, a few minutes left, you've been involved in a lot of litigation, particularly surrounding redistricting and voting, and, and you've experienced kind of having to get documents and information to support a claim of, of race discrimination. Any thoughts about, in the event Alan is successful at this stage, what the approach might be in order to get, you know, you're always looking for that smoking gun. Any thoughts on, on how his litigation team might approach that? Well, uh, there, there's a lot of work uh, to, to be done because they will have to uh, subpoena or seek uh, documentations 
dealing with uh, minutes and of meetings, uh, conversations between uh, the principal parties, uh, letters and other things that's been exchanged uh, in the uh, process as well as identify uh, witnesses who might have uh, information that they can bring uh, into court to uh, support uh, the, uh, the claims. And uh, it will take probably uh, a year, year and a half uh, just to uh, complete uh, that process. Uh, and then uh, you're moving toward the uh, motion for summary uh, judgment uh, at, uh, following that and then a trial, depending on how, the, uh, how that uh, motion is, uh, is resolved. So a lot to consider as the Supreme Court decides this case. We'll definitely keep an an eye on it and report back, but we are out of time, so we'll have to end our discussion here. We'd like to thank our guests, Professor Don Corbett, Professor of Law at North Carolina Central University School of Law. And, of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And we're happy to announce that you can now find this show on iTunes in podcast form. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.